The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies, like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. On April 29, 2007, two masked gunmen entered a trailer home occupied by a group of undocumented workers in Slidell, Louisiana, and demanded their cash. When Jose Carlos Martinez Carpio didn't comply, he was fatally shot, and the gunmen fled in a Chevy Tahoe. The witnesses described the gunmen as two black men around 5'8 to 5'10 with no tattoos. Two men were reported disposing of a gun outside of a Chevy Tahoe, and testing confirmed that that gun was the murder weapon. The investigation led to 17-year-old Glenn Carter, who confessed to the crime in exchange for leniency, saying that his accomplice was a guy named E. Police approached one of Carter's known associates, Edric Cooper, who offered to trade information about two more assailants for leniency. But in a crime involving only two assailants, wouldn't such lies just be ignored? Especially when those lies change repeatedly to adapt to new evidence. When two different sets of facts were needed to convict the actual perps and these other two guys, a judge would never let that slide, right? You would think, but this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we're headed to the incarceration capital of the most incarcerated nation in the world. And of course, I'm talking about Louisiana. And today's case involves four men convicted separately for the same crime. Two were admittedly guilty, while the other two were wrongfully convicted. And each conviction involved a slightly or entirely different set of quote-unquote facts. 
And we hope for justice to be served for both of the wrongfully convicted men. One of them is with us today. Jace Washington, thank you so much for joining us. All right, no problem. No problem at all. Yeah, we appreciate it. And with him, his fierce advocate, Izzy Afrie, who was alerted to this insane injustice while during COVID, taking a break from law school, writing articles about the criminal legal system. Now, she just passed the bar, but instead of following the corporate law route that she had originally charted and planned for herself, she's diving into her very first criminal case, pro bono. So, Izzy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Jace, before we launch into everything that's wrong with the criminal legal system in Louisiana, especially in St. Tammany Parish, and your case in particular, we'd like to get to know you a bit. Well, I was born in, in, in Crowley, Louisiana. My, my mother and my father separated when I was younger, so I had kind of been going back and forth between them, and I, I went to stay permanently with my father and on Flydell, and we were playing a lot of sports, baseball, basketball, football. Uh, later on, I got into skateboarding. So you were living a very active lifestyle in Slidell, Louisiana with your dad. And to make better sense of this story, our audience might want to take a look at Slidell on a map. Now, most people are familiar with New Orleans, of course, which is on the south side of Lake Pontchartrain. Slidell, on the other hand, is just across the lake to the northeast from New Orleans. At another 15 minutes east along I-10 brings you right into Mississippi. If you go west over the north side of Lake Pontchartrain, you go further into Louisiana, where Jace used to go to a skate park. So skateboarding was big for you, as was basketball, right? How tall are you? I'm about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, so 6'3", six, 6'4", six, definitely not around 5'9", along with a number of other physical characteristics that should have disqualified you as a suspect in this crime, and also as evidenced by your squeaky clean record prior to this. If I understand correctly, you had never been in trouble with the law. In a place where I understand it's a difficult maze to navigate for a young black man just to emerge unscathed. Right. I stayed out of trouble. That wasn't my thing. Being in St. Tammany Parish, being in Louisiana, is a very, very peculiar situation for young black people and especially young black males. You have a higher chance of being disadvantaged by the system. Coming out unscathed is, is, is rather hard, whether you're a terrible person, a troublemaker, or you're not. And I was not. No, you were not. Not even a smudge on your record. You were a great student athlete who simply had one unfortunate acquaintance. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, in Louisiana, from the post-Reconstruction era, straight on through to a ballot initiative that passed in 2018, Jace and so many others, countless others, were or could have been convicted by a non-unanimous jury. First, by a jury of get this, 9 out of 12. Then they changed it to, eventually they changed it to 10 out of 12. And the reason, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence because you probably already figured it out, so they could disenfranchise black jurors and to make use of the 13th Amendment slavery loophole as punishment for a crime, whether the person was guilty or not. Now, in covering this case, I came upon a person who helped to organize that 2018 ballot initiative. She's very active in St. Tammany and remembers Jace's trial well. My name is Belinda Parker Brown. I'm with Louisiana United International. We are a civil constitutional human rights organization that focus on the injustice in the criminal justice system. 
our organization is responsible for nicknaming this racist, unconstitutional Jim Crow law, this non-unanimous jury verdict. We nicknamed it 10-2. You know, I was so happy to see that happen during the 2018 midterms, but here we are just after the 2022 midterms in which there were ballot initiatives all over the country where the voters were given the opportunity to end the 13th Amendment slavery loophole in their states. but And that measure was approved, by the way, in all of the other states that voted on it, except for one, Louisiana. But Louisiana is not alone, far from it, and still benefiting from slave labor. And it needs to stop in every state, especially when you have entire parishes or counties in this country seemingly devoted to pumping out one wrongful conviction after another, And of course, no one is more vulnerable to the machinery of our criminal legal system than the poor. They wind up taking a plea to things that they did not do. And that's what they were doing here in St. Tammany, forcing, threatening, badgering young black men to take pleas to things that they did not do just because they could not afford an attorney. And because of that, the lead district attorney, Walter Reed, nicknamed this parish, St. Tammany, St. Slamini. And that became something that they celebrated here in this parish, especially when the re-elections and all of that stuff would come around. You know, they was tough on crime. And, you know, if you come over here with your chiwis and your your dreadlocks and, you know, we're going to get you, we're going to lock you up and throw the key away. Right. I read the quote that I believe you're referring to. And at first, I couldn't believe it was real because of just the naked racism of it. It was from the St. Tammany Sheriff, Sheriff Jack Strain. And this is a guy who had been in power there since 1995. He was running for re-election in 2010, just after Jace's conviction. And on the campaign trail, he said, and this is a direct quote, he said, for some reason, New Orleans chooses to coddle criminals in that area that tend to get away with a great deal, end quote. And first off, no. Orleans Parish, between Harry Connick Sr. and Leon Canizaro, was notorious. But back to the quote, he said, quote, we will not coddle that trash in St. Tammany Parish. If you're going to walk the streets with dreadlocks and chiwi hairstyles, then you can expect to get a visit from a sheriff's deputy. Everybody knew who he was talking about. It was the most profound racial sickness that can come out of a person's mouth. That really, you know, inspired me to begin to protest against the sheriff's jail. It's like a godforsaken hellhole. You know, people were being beat and raped and committing so-called suicide. And he had something that we nicknamed them the squirrel cages. These squirrel cages were these three by three or four by four foot cells. I mean, they were like phone booths, basically. Nowhere to move. Just You could just stand still pretty much. And of course, no plumbing. In these squirrel cages, they would defecate on themselves. They would put them in there butt naked for weeks. You know, people would just say, okay, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say it. You know, I just want to get this over with. And using torture tactics like these pretty much ensures that law enforcement will get whatever statement they want to fix or rig a case. So add to that the non-unanimous jury verdicts, and you've got a system fixed to maintain a 98% conviction rate. These are the tactics that they used in Jace's case, and we'll get to that in a bit. So, Belinda, after Jace had already gone to prison and Sheriff Strain had made these comments while campaigning, your organization had taken to the streets to protest. During the protest on public property, they came out 
and told us to get off of their land. And at that particular time, my youngest son, because he was videotaping for us at that protest, they arrested him and put him inside of one of those squirrel cages. And literally that put the gasoline on my fire to go after these people for the wrongdoing. So if you take nothing else away from this story, it's that you shouldn't fuck with Belinda. So the two people most responsible for Jace's wrongful conviction and countless others, the DA, Walter Reed, got convicted of a number of financial crimes. And from what I understand, those were the ones that the FBI could make stick. But the sheriff, well, I'm going to let you tell it. Jack Strain, he would spend the rest of his life in prison. This sheriff was just a very sick, sick man. You know, as an organizer, you know, people would come to me with these stories and I would like try to vet what they're saying after we dug up everything that we possibly could on him. And it was over 33 witnesses that was coming forth saying that the sheriff was raping people inside of the jail. He was charged with incest, raping and molesting his own family members. It's an absolute horror show and it somehow gets worse. This sheriff was also brought up on bribery charges. They were privatizing the work release program, basically slave trading under a different name. And he was getting kickbacks from those contending to take it private. <laughs> Just, it's unreal. Meanwhile, of course, he was out there putting these people in squirrel cages, in these literal torture cages to supply fresh bodies for the slave trade. You know, I don't know if the people are aware that the state and the federal government give so much money to the jails and prison. And you got to be at least at 97% occupancy before you can receive the federal and state funding. So not only did this uh, sheriff, Strain, have his own nefarious incentive to keep convictions up, as, of course, did the DA seeking re-election. But there is literally also a financial incentive from the state and federal government to keep up the supply of fresh bodies, innocent or not. That same vile and perverse incentive leads many municipalities all over this country to operate this way, torturing or coercing statements from not only the quote-unquote suspects, but witnesses as well. Jack Halstead was one of the corrupt prosecutors in, in, that prosecuted Jace that was known for badgering and threatening witnesses and tell him, say, if you don't say what it is we want you to say, you know, you're going to get your kids taken away from you. You're not going to be able to get a job. They literally made people's lives miserable. You know, we got people that would testify to that. Their doors and stuff were kicked in. Again, you've heard these tactics before on this show, and if police have never threatened you or coerced you this way, maybe you'd be inclined to believe the things they say in court and find yourself among the 10 out of 12 who consistently voted to convict. And so, as we begin to talk about this case, in which there were two assailants, you'll see how these two now-disgraced former elected officials, along with the Jim Crow-era practice of non-unanimous juries, were all integral to Jace's conviction as well as the perverse incentives locally for the sheriff, of course, and from the state and federal government, and how and why these nefarious actors in St. Tammany Parish would decide to prosecute four young men in a case in which there were only two assailants. The two actual admitted assailants were Glenn Carter and Edric Cooper. Grant Gathers and our guest, Jace Washington, were in addition to what was even called for. 
Now, Jace, you didn't even know Glenn, right? But I understand that you did know Grant and Edric. All of us went to school together, you know. We played basketball in school together. Me and Grant were a little closer, a little more than acquaintances, a little closer than, than Edric and I were. And from what I understand, they both had a criminal record. Edric has admitted to making a habit of trading false or real information for freedom in his general occupation of petty theft. And Grant had been convicted once before, but his experience with the system in St. Tammany played into his decision once they came after him for this. So that brings us to April 29, 2007. This crime happened in Slidell, Louisiana, just on the north side of Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans, where five or six undocumented workers were living in a trailer as a home base for their day labor jobs in New Orleans. Now, being undocumented, these guys carried cash and were not likely to go to law enforcement if they were robbed, which made them easy targets. So according to the initial statements from the victim's friends, two gunmen came into the trailer demanding money. The victim, Jose Carlos Martinez Carpio, had trouble understanding with the language barrier and attacked the gunman with a kitchen knife or something, and he was fatally shot. The assailants then fled, leaving the rest of the men in the trailer stunned and grieving, as well as in an almost impossibly precarious predicament. So some time went by before they called the police. The first 911 call was at 9.17 p.m. There was a gap there. The guy I think next door to them ended up calling 911. That's what he explained at another trial, that minutes had passed. Time had passed from the time of the shots by and the 911 call because they were trying to figure out what to do. And I want to bring Izzy in here. Uh, Now, some of the witnesses in the trailer that night were interviewed by the police, right? Yes, I think all of them were actually interviewed. But there were some of them that said that they heard the gunshot, they closed their doors, and did not come outside at all. But there were two people who said that they described seeing two people, the gunman, enter the mobile home. They had their faces covered, but their arms were bare, and they could tell that they were black men. The taller of the two men went into the kitchen area, and then they heard gunshots coming from the kitchen area. And the shorter gunman who was at the door, he was nervous, and so he fired his weapon onto the floor, and then he also fled the area. So the gunman fled. The two witnesses are Echo Goyan and Avila. They said that one gunman was taller than the other, but not by much. They said that they were similar to their height, which was about 5'8 and 5'10 foot tall. Jace stands about 6'4 feet tall, and Carter and Cooper is about 5'8, 5'10 feet tall. Now, Jace is a black man, but he is extremely light-skinned. Carter is a little darker. The witnesses that were inside the home saw the arms of the assailants and said, no, they didn't have any tattoos. But if you look at Jace, he has clearly visible tattoos on both arms. So that's three major features right there that don't match the witnesses' descriptions. That should have been it right there. These are things that are not subject to the pitfalls of misidentification. You can't really mistake no tattoos for tattoos, dramatic contrast in skin tone, and 6'4 for 5'8. The two people that they saw in the mobile home did not match the description of Jace Washington. Or Grant Gathers, for that matter. No, they matched the description of Cooper and Carter. Right, but at this point, the cops just had two black men, 5'8 and 5'10, dark skin, no tattoos, both with guns, faces recovered. I believe they mentioned a Chevy Tahoe. According to a report written by one of the detectives in this case, a detective calendar. Other witnesses reported the Chevy Tahoe as well, right? April 30th, there was an eyewitness that reported two black males in a car 
very close to the crime area, one of the black males exit the car and appeared to be hiding a weapon in the bushes. The officers, they were able to retrieve the gun and then trace the gun to one of the guns that was used in that robbery. And that's what led officers to arrest Carter in the first place. So... They zeroed in on 17-year-old Glenn Carter a few days later on May 3rd when he was thrown into a squirrel cage. And I believe he was facing the death penalty, so it's not a hard decision to cooperate. He confessed to the crime, giving a very similar story as the witnesses, and gave up the name E, or the initial E, as his accomplice. Now, the police were already familiar with 18-year-old Edric Cooper as a known associate of Glenn Carter from previous run-ins, so this was basically all the corroboration they needed to go scoop him up. Cooper... He was wanted by the detectives already. Um, a week earlier, they had been looking for him. That was the way they were able to identify who Glenn Carter was talking about as his accomplice. So on May 5th, Edric Cooper, he also confessed. But he told the officers that there were two other people who were with him, Jace Washington and Grant Gethers. By Carter implicating him, him already being wanted, Cooper kind of pulled two names out the air to try to relieve some of the trouble that he was in. It could have been anybody. There's paperwork from other witnesses that was interviewed by detectives. They say he added two or three other names. You know, if the detectives knew Cooper was not telling the truth because there were things that they already knew that Cooper did not realize they knew. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, this was Cooper's M.O. to trade false information for freedom. St. Tammany police knew that from previous interactions, but they were more than happy to work with him anyway. In an unrelated crime, the same thing happened. Eyewitnesses gave descriptions that fit Carter and Cooper. Carter told on Cooper again, and when detectives asked Cooper about it, he implicated a third party. And the eyewitnesses' descriptions that they gave did not fit this third party or the number of assailants, the number of suspects that were seen in this other unrelated crime. Yep, deja vu all over again. And as we spoke about already, St. Tammany PD, the sheriff, the DA, they all had their own list of incentives to work with Cooper, and none of them were truth, justice, or public safety. So what we're going to see unfold here is the prosecution of Glenn Carter on the basis of the witness statements from the trailer and his own confession. Then, Edric Cooper pled guilty under the same set of facts, and then Jace gets prosecuted under a totally different narrative. The jury was kept completely in the dark, and Cooper was allowed to change the details and manipulate the narrative over time in order to implicate two more young men, Jace and Grant, in a crime in which there were only two assailants. So let's talk about the ever-changing false narrative of Edric Cooper. The initial statement that he gave, he said all four of them rode to the crime scene in Carter's vehicle. He said that he had a black 9mm Luger, Jace had a 38, and Carter had a 45. He said Jace and Carter entered the trailer and Cooper and Grant stood outside as the lookouts. And so when they heard the gunshot, that's when they all started running and they drove out of the crime scene, all four of them in Carter's car. That's the story that he told the officers. Glenn Carter and the trailer witnesses said that Carter, the taller of the two gunmen, went into the kitchen while the shorter gunman stayed in the front by the door. First of all, if Jace was one of the gunmen, then he most certainly would have been the taller one by far. 
Jace being 6'4 is an irreconcilable truth on its face, as are the tattoos. Then you have the witnesses that reported seeing the gun drop outside the Tahoe. And just like Glenn Carter and the witnesses from the trailer, they also only reported seeing two men. So despite what detectives with any sort of moral compass should have done, they got an arrest warrant for Jace and a search warrant for Jace's father's house. Now, remember, we have Glenn Carter with the murder weapon, a 45. Then Jace allegedly with a 38, and Edric Cooper outside with a 9mm Luger. So Jace's father legally owned a 9mm Ruger handgun. So when they found that gun, Cooper changed his statement to say Ruger. So Ruger, not Luger. And then he also changed his statement to say that it wasn't him, it was Jace that had that gun. Okay, so now with Jace's plausible access to his father's Ruger, not Luger, Ruger, Cooper has not only to change the brand of gun, but also to switch gun placements between him and Jace. So in this version of events, Cooper was allegedly outside now with the 38. Now, didn't the trailer witnesses say that the gunman by the front door had fired his weapon into the floor? Yes, the 38 gun was actually fired in the trailer. So Cooper changed the statement to include him and Grant Gethers all in the trailer four people in the trailer instead of just two people that he had initially said. So the only thing from his initial statement that remained the same, and with the only thing that was consistent with Glenn Carter's statement, was that Glenn Carter used a forty-five. Other than that, the brand of 9mm changed, as did who was holding it, in order to match what the police had found at Jace's father's house. And then the number of people in the trailer had to change in order to make room for the fact that the thirty-eight had been fired, as well as the change of who was holding what gun. Jace, allegedly with his father's Ruger, and Cooper firing the 38 into the ground, as the witnesses in the trailer had said. And as you had mentioned earlier, a lot of those people that lived inside the home were immigrants that did not have the proper authorization to remain in the United States. So right after the incident happened, they were all arrested and detained. They were detained until December of that same year when who I believe is the current DA of St. Tammany Parish, filed a petition with the court and said that these guys were victims and so did not deserve to be detained and they had to be released. After they were released, one of those people also started changing his story. The current DA is Warren Montgomery, and he worked with the public defender's office at the time. Now, one of the undocumented workers, either Ekagoyan or Avila, changed their story to maybe possibly include a third or fourth assailant to give the state the wiggle room they needed to eventually prosecute Jace and Grant. But back to the immediate aftermath. So both you and Grant were about to be arrested. They ended up coming to pick me up from my home the next day. You don't have enough money for an attorney. It took us a long time to figure out what was being said, and who said. So no money for an attorney means no money for bail, and you've got no information about why you're even there. I can't even imagine what must have been going through your mind. They take you and they shackle you. World cages are full. Some of them have two or three people in them. Some of them still have handcuffs on. You know, I'm 19 years old. I'm, I'm trying to process what's going on. And they put me right into one of those world cages. And I'm still trying to figure out how did I get here. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. 
AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Four was better than two. Four black bodies was better than two in this incident. And as, as things were revealed that works against the detective and state theory, all they did was manipulate it and change it. And this could have been remedied from the beginning if Detective Stacey Callum and Detective Keith Cannizzaro had done their job. And it seems they might have been doing their job. It's just not the job that they pretend it is in public. So you were stuck in jail awaiting trial with one piece of information, a report from Detective Callender about the investigation. Meanwhile, they were out there trying to fix the case against you. So they tried to corroborate Edric Cooper's narrative, and they had to change it several times by now already just to fit the facts. And then DNA evidence was also conducted because he had said that they rode in and out in Carter's car. And he said Carter gave them certain items from his car, like a bandana and items to cover their faces. They seized Carter's car, tested it thoroughly for DNA evidence. There is not a single instant where Jason's or Grant Gather's DNA was found in any of the items that were found in Carter's car or anything in Carter's car. Which, had they been in there, finding neither of their DNA, that's not plausible, maybe not even possible. Yes. So Cooper then changes the story to say that Grant and Jace were in one car, and he and Carter were in Carter's car. That's convenient. So, okay, boom, a new, non-existent, nondescript car gets introduced. What's odd, though, is that this narrative is only present in Jace's case. Grant Gathers, on the other hand, had a prior, and had he gone to trial, he could have got life. So he pled guilty in exchange for leniency, understandably. In his plea, though, he copped to being in the Chevy Tahoe. But because he didn't fight it, the fact that DNA testing excluded him from the Tahoe didn't matter. He just took the seven years or whatever they gave him to get out of his squirrel cage. And Jace would have been out in like 2017, 2020, the latest, had he done the same. They never in a million years expected me to go to trial and fight, they were expecting me to be guilty. From the moment that he was arrested, all that they wanted him to do was just say you're guilty, just say you did it. So then we give you a manslaughter charge and you probably get like 10 years. And he kept insisting that he's not going to plead guilty to something that he hadn't done. Man, they, they tried to interview me at least three or four times after I asked for an attorney, which is unconstitutional. Detective Stacey Cavs, Detective Canadero, they would send, try to send different people in there to, to get me to make a confession. And at one point, he was telling me when I asked for my attorney, oh, well, you're going to have a public defender. The public defender doesn't care about you, so it's, it's in your best interest to just go ahead. And I'm like, man, I want my lawyer. You know, at, at this point, I'm kind of getting agitated. I want my lawyer. So after a while of that, they finally take me in for process. And on my way out, the former Sheriff Jack Strain made the comment that this is in New Orleans. You know, at this time, I had the chibi dreadlock hairstyle. 
Sheriff Strain was very clear about his views in his re-election campaign in 2010. He equated the chi-weed dreadlock hairstyle with criminal behavior, and it's probably why he operated the way he did. So the squirrel cage didn't work on you. Reasoning with you about how you're going to get terrible representation hadn't worked. What happened next? I was taken out of the squirrel cage, and I was placed in the hole for 90 days. Couldn't see the news. I had to ask someone, a friend of mine, to send me internet printout of an article to just kind of get an understanding of what exactly they were saying was going on, because we still don't know what's going on. I don't think they knew what was going on because they hadn't decided on the narrative that they were going to frame you with yet. So you got out of the hole after 90 days, met with your public defender, and finally got to see a report from Detective Stacy Callender. But years later, we find out that a lot of the stuff she put in that first investigative report was manipulated and fabricated. She fabricated witnesses, statements, evidence. She changes the descriptions of two eyewitnesses give. She changes things that Cooper tells her. She just changes things throughout her investigative report to make their investigation seem tighter. And what she's saying in her report and the investigation done by the detectives is not matching up. And like you said, you didn't find this out until years later. Unfortunately, you did not have the benefit of effective counsel or the opportunity to review those materials to make that comparison yourself. Certainly, neither your first public defender, James Talley, or your second, Melissa Brink, were able to develop a defense outlining the discrepancies between Detective Callender's report and the actual investigation. Maybe a year and a half. The only thing I had was her investigative report. Just restricted her words. I had no witness transcripts, no witness statements, or anything like that. So I'm trying to build a defense off of what's in this report. And then maybe a, two months before trial, 2009, they come back, and now all of a sudden that's changed. You know, I got up in open court, and I explained to Judge Richard Swartz what was taking place. And the answer he gave me was, Melissa Brink can handle it. And that, that assessment turned out to be very, very, very incorrect. Yeah, she was handling, what, like 378 cases? I mean, I, I got to pause there again. That's crazy when she should have had, I mean, even 150 would have been a, an incredible strain on anyone. The ineffective counsel was virtually guaranteed, as it is with so many indigent defendants all over the country. The constitutional violation is built right in. So Glenn Carter went to trial first, followed by Edric Cooper, then you, then Grant, and all four of you were found guilty separately, and I mean very separately. And can you explain what I'm talking about? Well, first, Glenn Carter was tried. August 2008, he was convicted with evidence of only him and Edric Cooper committing this crime. Right. So consistent with the original witness statements and his own admission. Right. There was no evidence presented by the state of three and four other people. The next day after Glenn Carter was convicted, Edric Cooper pled guilty, but under the factual basis that it was only him and Carter who committed the crime. So everything that Glenn Carter and Edric Cooper copped to at their proceedings exonerated you. You weren't even mentioned in those proceedings. What about his statement that was eventually used against you? The next day after pleading guilty, the detectives took him per the district attorney's office to an undisclosed location, no attorney, nobody knows where they went, to re-interview him. And all of a sudden, miraculously, this second statement comes up and it seeks to invalidate 
the initial investigation that exonerated me. So Cooper's initial statement, which served as the probable cause to arrest you and search your father's house, in which he admitted to his involvement, that was not even brought up at his proceedings, probably because it was so wildly and completely out of step with reality. But now they needed a new statement that wasn't so obviously false that included you and Grant Gathers. And the only thing about this new statement that even vaguely resembled the initial statement was that you two were there and that Carter used a forty-five. They also now had one of the trailer witnesses allegedly giving them that wiggle room of, well, maybe there was a third or fourth assailant. Who knows if this change was just the translator taking some sort of creative license? I mean, it could have been. But how did the judge even allow this to go on? We're talking about the narrative of a crime that have just appeared twice in front of the court. Judge Buris, the judge that did Carter's trial and the Cooper's plea, once he took the plea from Edric Cooper, said in open court on the record that he was recognizing these as stipulated facts, basically. He used the legal term, he was taking judicial notice, which is he's saying he's taking these facts that he's been watching throughout the Carter proceedings, and now, at this Cooper proceeding, he's saying, okay, this is what y'all are saying happened in this crime. These are the facts of the case. So Judge Juris was not going to accept the facts that were presented at my trial. And what happened was I was miraculously taken out of Judge Buris court and placed in an entirely different section where a different set of facts were presenting to a different judge saying that, hey, two completely irreconcilable things happened in this case. Yeah, you just can't have two contradicting narratives of the same crime. So even though they switch you to a different judge, Judge Schwartz, I mean, wouldn't he just see the same thing that Burris did? The state must have recognized that this was weak footing. Jace's trial was in October 12, 2009. October 9th, they were presenting him with a plea deal to testify against Grant Gethers. And he said he can't testify against Grant because he wasn't there. So you're sticking to your innocence to the bitter end. Did your public defender try to encourage you to take a plea? To plead guilty, yes. Every day, up until October 14th, 2009, which was the day I, I was found guilty. And I keep telling her the same thing over and over and over again. Like, I'm not pleading guilty to something that I didn't do. And just out of curiosity, what did they offer? Ten years. Ten years. That was ultimately Grant Gethers' decision in, in pleading guilty to eight years. I was found guilty of a lesser charge. Grant Gethers would have been going to trial for second-degree murder, which in Louisiana is a mandatory life sentence with no parole. So it was decision between eight years or mandatory life with no parole. That's pretty easy math to do. And I guess he didn't know about the DNA evidence that excluded him from ever having entered Glenn Carter's Chevy Tahoe that was a part of the narrative of his proceedings. And what about the evidence presented in Carter and Cooper's proceedings? You think your attorney would be a little more confident and you would have fared a lot better at trial, but what happened? We tried to get Carter's confessions that exonerate me, introduce at trial so the jury could hear it. The judge shot it down. He said it, it wasn't trustworthy. Wasn't trustworthy? They just used it to send two men away, one for life. It just didn't make any sense, and the jury never heard that. The 12 people at my trial still don't know to this day that this confession existed, and if they had, 
there's reasonable likelihood that I would have got a not guilty verdict. I mean, what else are we supposed to conclude about this judge? He saw the evidence from the other two proceedings, which impeached the testimony of the state star witness against you, and he excluded it. So now the jury only hears the narrative of Edric Cooper, and they have no idea how many times it changed or how fundamental those changes were. And as we've mentioned up until this point, the impeachment evidence for Cooper's testimony had not been developed very well by Jace's attorney. The prosecution, you know, they had the burden, but their burden was very simple, was just really getting Cooper to tell the most recent version of events. The defense's job was probably harder, that she needed to be extremely organized to list all those statements that Cooper had said that weren't true, and then actually also do the extra work to show that even if we're supposed to believe the last statement that he's given and disregard all all the prior statements that he's saying, this last statement that he's saying cannot even be true. And she didn't do that. She didn't have the time to do all the investigation or probably didn't have the resources to do the investigations that she needed to do. And so she went to trial unprepared and the jury could not follow. She didn't effectively demonstrate the whole clusterfuck around the narrative changing between Cooper outside the trailer with a 9mm Luger and Jace inside with a 38 to then Jace with a 9mm Ruger and all four of them inside the trailer. Then you have one witness likely threatened with deportation or worse, changing their story to include the possibility of more assailants than the original two. Then going from one car to two cars because DNA evidence excluded Jace. How this issue wasn't raised, it just baffles and infuriates me. But then there's this phone record evidence that was introduced to draw a connection between Jace and Glenn Carter but it could have easily been used to impeach Cooper's ever-changing narrative. Cooper had made statements about how he, Jace, and Grant went to Mississippi earlier in the day when the phone records show that Jace and Grant had never left Louisiana. She could have connected those dots or called an expert to extrapolate a clear vision of Cooper's lies from the phone record, but again, she was just overwhelmed and not prepared to do that which could have been a game changer. So Cooper had initially told officers that he and Jace and Grant, they had been in Mississippi and then they returned to Slidale on Sunday, which was the day of the incident, about five or so. What is interesting was that Jace had a purchase receipt that showed that he was already in Louisiana around 3 p.m. So at trial, Cooper changed the testimony again to say that they arrived in Slidale at 10 a.m. So this appears to be just more of the police and Edric Cooper perfecting his statement to align with reality. And that's what you have to do with lies. So how did they try to connect Jace with Glenn Carter? Cooper said that when he got to Slidale, he called Carter on Jace's phone. He said that that's when they all got together with Carter and that's when they planned the robbery together. And then he also said that after the robbery, when they were fleeing the area, he said that Jace called Carter on Carter's phone and Carter did not answer. So they asked him, how many times did he call? And he said he called just once. When all four of them were initially arrested, there were two numbers that were listed for Carter. One number the officers found out quickly was not Carter's number. So they proceeded with just the remaining number. And so that number that they proceeded through before Jace's trial as Carter's number, that number never appeared on Jace's phone. So not at either time that Cooper alleged, 10 a.m. or 9.18 p.m. So how did they try to make it look like Jace and Carter spoke on the phone? About a week before Jace's trial, the prosecution goes into Jace's phone. There was a phone call from Jace's number at 918. 
So the prosecution presented this number as Carter's number. So the prosecution just took whatever number Jace called around the time of the crime and just told the jury that that was Carter's number to match up with Cooper's latest version of events. So let's try to unravel this one. Cooper said that when Jace called Carter, that Carter did not answer. But the number that Jace called around 918, it shows that the person actually answered. And there was a conversation. And it shows that a few minutes or so after, Jace called that number again, and the person also answered. And so I'm sure our audience won't be surprised to find out that the number that they presented as Carter's during trial only appeared in the evening, not at 10 a.m., as Cooper had said, thereby exposing yet another one of this guy's lies. After trial, Jace's attorney filed a writ with a court for a subpoena to get that phone record to verify if that number was Carter's number, the number that Cooper had testified at trial to be Carter's number. And that number turned out not to be Carter's number. If you read the Court of Appeals' opinion on Jace's case, it appears that that's something that they consider to be important, that the, the state was able to establish that connection between Jace and Carter using that phone record. But the phone record that they presented wasn't Carter's phone number. And what the prosecution did was they just presented the number and showed it to Cooper at trial and said that, whose number is this? And then Cooper goes, this is Jace's number. Whose number is this? And then he goes, that's Carter's number. Who's the number calling this number? And it's like Jace's number calling Carter's number. Then they bring Carter's girlfriend to the stand. Carter's girlfriend, this is two years later, two years after this incident had happened. Carter's girlfriend comes to the stand and then the prosecution asks her, back in April of 2007, was Glenn Carter your boyfriend? And she says, yes, sir. And the prosecution goes, and Glenn Carter's been convicted of murder. Is that correct? She goes, yes, sir. In April of 2000, what was Glenn Carter's phone number? Then she lists the number that Jace dialed on the night of the incident. She lists that as Carter's number for memory. Two years Two years, she remembered that number like that from memory. And this is the part where I just felt so disappointed in Jace's attorney at the time because she just basically said, I have no questions. She did not cross-examine this witness to even understand how she remembered Carter's number. She did not cross-examine Cooper to even find out how he remembered that to be Carter's number two years after the incident happened. She did find out that this was not, in fact, Carter's number, that both of these witnesses perjured themselves, but too little, too late. I've got to imagine that having them memorize a number off of Jace's phone that wasn't their friend Glenn Carter's had to have been the prosecution's idea. But if I were on the jury, I mean, after hearing Cooper's testimony, not knowing all the inconsistencies with prior statements or how it was contradicted by witness statements, and having that testimony corroborated by the phone records, I can see how the jury was fooled. And even with that, there was at least one person on the jury that said that they didn't believe what the state was saying. They had that testimony from Cooper. Cooper's credibility wasn't properly impeached by Jace's attorney. And they ended up buying his story over the story that Jace's attorney, because I don't even know what story she was trying to tell. She didn't put up that defense. There were so many other people who were willing to testify about Jace's whereabouts. There were so many other witnesses that she just didn't call. In the beginning, all that she wanted to do was for Jace to plead guilty. So she wasn't preparing for a trial. Other than the inadequate and disorganized cross-examination, and I think she put your dad on the stand to say that you didn't have access to his gun and that you were home at the time of the crime, unfortunately, alibi defense from family rarely does the trick. 
So other than that, did your attorney present any defense at all? She called no witnesses. She presented none of the evidence, none of the phone records, no expert for the phone records, nothing. She did nothing. She, she, she put together no defense to adequately test the theory and the chronological timeline of Edgy Cooper and the state. All of the evidence that I have now proving what I'm saying, all of it was gathered by the state. Stuff that they call open discovery. Stuff that she could have pulled, looked at, and been able to simply prove. Which just points out that the state had to have known what they were doing. This was their information, and they simply used it to guide the actual guilty party to frame an innocent man. I mean, did you have any hope after sitting through this sham trial? Yes, because Cooper admitted to lying the day after he took that guilty plea. You know, he was asked a question, and he was like, okay, yeah, I lied then too, but I'm not lying right now. And I think that was one of the biggest things that made me believe that I may come out of this all right, you know. It wasn't a unanimous verdict. It was non-unanimous. During the jury poll, you had one white lady. You could see that she was rather perturbed by the fact that the other 11 jurors could not see past them saying I committed a crime. During the jury poll, she was visibly angry that this was happening because she was able to see what the state is saying and what Edward Cooper is saying doesn't make any sense. So he was acquitted of the second degree murder, and then they found him guilty of the manslaughter. In that moment, I was trying to wrap my head around what was going on and how it had taken place. It wasn't very secretive. They're not even sweeping it under the rug anymore. They're just dumping it on the ground and leaving it there. In that moment, I kind of realized what I was dealing with. That guilty verdict came. I realized I'm dealing with a monster. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at FisherHomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Finance provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. 
Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. I was sentenced to 25 years, 25 years, hard labor, digging ditches, digging holes, surrounded by white guys on a horse with rifles, and you're, you're, you're digging, you're, you're pulling vegetables, I mean, hard labor, and it's two cents a day, four cents a day, you know, if, if, that, if that's not slavery, then I don't know what is. It is quite literally slavery, according to the 13th Amendment. And then, according to voters in the 2022 midterms, who voted to keep slavery as a punishment for a crime in Louisiana. I mean, between all of the official and prosecutorial misconduct, the incentives to keep the jail and prison population up, and how woefully overworked and underfunded the public defender's office is, it's almost like this is what the legislature has planned for poor people across Louisiana, let alone all over our country. Having a public defender who could not possibly organize or present an adequate defense is not the exception. It's the rule for indigent defendants. It's a built-in constitutional violation of the right to effective assistance of counsel. So there's a 50-page report that was, I want to say, funded by the U.S. Department of Justice through the American University in Washington, D.C. And the findings of the report established that Indigenous descendants in St. Tammany Parish are routinely deprived their constitutional rights and their due process. There was a 60-minute segment in 2017 with Anderson Cooper, and several public defenders from Louisiana were interviewed, and they were explaining that it's like an assembly line in Louisiana. There's an abject underfunding by the state legislator of the public defender's office in Louisiana. And they're basically operating on a budget where they cannot give the constitutionally required representation to indigent defendants. And they spend no remedies. And no one is addressing the people who are being affected, predominantly Black Americans. Has it affected you and continues to fix other folks? And you have not been taking this lying down. Between stints out in the fields, you've been studying the law and aggressively filing pro se motions, as well as having some legal help along the way. But unfortunately, you're being denied where it seems pretty clear that you should not be, especially on the very basic ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And you know what? That last motion she filed, she talked about things that she should have done prior to trial, and she just kind of laid it all out so that I could come back and fight it on post-eviction or collateral attack. She even made the comment to me that I should get some kind of relief from not being able to use Carter's statement at trial. She was in the belief that, okay, hey, that was so big that it's going to get the case overturned. But it's just every time it comes back the same thing, denied, denied, denied. 
all the other appeals that he filed with the court have also been denied because the standard of review on appeal, especially if you challenge the insufficiency of evidence, is that the court just holds the position that if the jury believed these things to be true, then we're also going to believe it to be true. So Cooper's version of events, that's what the Court of Appeals take to be true. And so when the court finds that a reasonable jury could come to that conclusion based on these facts, then the court will affirm the person's conviction. Cooper's testimony is what is following Jace with every appeal that he files. His appeals get denied. But what Jace has been challenging is that the testimonies, the evidence that the prosecution presented to the jury were not true. Right. They presented false evidence, and one can surmise easily that they had to know that they were doing so, considering how they helped Cooper shape and mold his statements over time to drag two innocent people into this situation, contrary to the initial witness statements and the factual basis presented at both Carter's and Cooper's proceedings. But shortly after your conviction, between conviction and sentencing, I believe, Edric Cooper gave a recantation that is believed to have been made before trial. Is that right, Izzy? Yes, this is August 20th. So if I'm reading the date right, this was probably before Jace's trial on August 20th, 2009, where Cooper signed an affidavit that he was ready to present to the court to say that he had lied about the whole thing, that every statement that he had provided was a lie, and that he was a scared 18-year-old boy, that he knew Jace had never been in any type of criminal trouble. And so because of that, he implicated Jace because he knew that Jace wasn't going to get convicted. Well, clearly he didn't understand what he was dealing with in St. Tammany Parish. So he wrote this prior to Jace's trial, but no one was aware of it until between Jace's conviction and his sentencing. What happens was, I, I go to court for sentencing, and Jack Hofstad, the district attorney's office, threatens him perjury if he goes through with the recantation. Same thing with Grant Dellis. He did a recantation explaining that he was falsely implicated in the crime. Grant said that he wasn't there either and that whatever it is that he said about Jace's involvement is not true. All of this gets taken and once again manipulated in, in the state's favor. Like, Cooper was forced to make those recantations. Uh, same thing with Grant Gellers, and they're making me look like I'm the wolf. You know, like I'm just a big bad guy that's trying to force things into his favor, and the whole time, it's the opposite. Classic projection. All of these witnesses that they called credible at your trial, whom they had coerced into lying, they then threatened them with perjury for trying to say something they knew to be true from their own investigation. So they got Cooper and Grant to keep quiet. What about Glenn Carter? Carter actually wrote me a letter that I have, and he's explaining in the letter that he's remorseful that I ended up getting caught up in all of it. So Carter wrote a letter to Jace in which he said a number of things. But the most important here that he said is that, but when all of this is over, you could send somebody at me to sign the papers for you. Since E, which is Edric, and Grant not gonna do it. I don't feel like you should be in here anyway. You didn't do anything. So like I said, let me get my shit situated and I might do that for you. I know who was there and I didn't see you. And I took that and I sent it to Judge Schwartz maybe 2012 to get a new trial. Judge Schwartz shot that down as well without even addressing the significance of that letter in cooperation to everything that I was saying before and during the trial, 
letters from all three of them have been shot down saying basically that they hold no credibility. It's funny how they will find recantations not credible, but that doesn't drag into question any previous statements made in court by the same person. Like, did they recently learn how to become a liar? Is that the basic theory? The only metric they're using for credibility seems to be if it maintains a conviction and suits their narrative. And in your case, the state had the evidence that discredited the statements made against you at trial, but somehow these recantations are the incredible statements. So incredible, in fact, that when Jace received these recantation letters, his cell got tossed. Do I have that right, Jace? Yeah, that was in 2010. I had the letters from Grant and Edric. What happened was they came and took all of my stuff, man. A lot of my early pictures. I'd never seen it again after that date. And in that bag, in that stuff, were the recantations. But thankfully, I had sent it home. And I sent it in someone else's name. I'm glad I did that. I can't imagine how defeated you would have felt. So at least you have a record of the other two recantations while you await Carter's help. What did you have to wait for to get his help? So I don't know what he has going on legally. They promised him a parole date because he now has parole under the new juvenile law. Since he was 17, he was arrested. Right. Because he was a juvenile, that falls under two very important SCOTUS decisions, Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana. Between the two, it makes a mandatory life without parole sentence, except in cases of permanent incorrigibility, it makes that sentence for a juvenile unconstitutional. And that decision was made retroactive. So he was resentenced and probably wants to wait until those proceedings are through before upsetting his own apple cart by helping you, since it seems they were hell-bent on ignoring the signs pointing to your innocence, and that has not changed ever since your conviction. I think this needs to go to a new trial, if not a new venue, because there is certainly new evidence, and I don't see how you could ever be convicted with that new evidence being presented. So I have Cooper's statement where he recanted everything and said he lied. I have Grant where he said he lied. I have Carter's letter. You, you also have the subpoenaed phone records for the number passed off as Carter's phone in court, which established collusion between Jace and Glenn Carter. However, that key piece of evidence turned out to be bogus. That subpoena is not in Jace's official filings, so it's new evidence. So given the opportunity, you could subpoena the phone company again to submit that as new evidence. And you also did all the work that his attorney never did, thereby destroying Cooper's morass of lies. For me, what I'm hoping comes out of this is that Somebody goes like, okay, let's look into this. Not even take my word for it. Let's look at the paperwork. The statements that were presented to the jury were false. And the prosecutor's office knew or should have known that those statements were false. Cooper changed and was allowed to change those testimonies with no consequences of perjury. And so he constantly keep changing the stories over and over again until it got to a point where the prosecution could sell that story to a jury. And as we had said earlier, even with all of this, there was at least one person in that jury that said that they did not believe what the prosecution was selling them. Which in any other state except Oregon at the time would have meant a hung jury. And this brings us to the very important development of Louisiana no longer accepting non-unanimous jury verdicts. They did away with this Jim Crow era practice in 2018 by ballot initiative. But when this new law was taken to the Supreme Court, rather than making it retroactive, they let it up to the state of Louisiana to decide. 
to me, that's like telling the fox that's guarding the hen house to do something about what you did that you know was wrong. So Louisiana saying they're not going to let the people go here. Within our organization, we know that it's over 8,000 people. It's over 1,700 or more here in St. Tammany Parish, with Jace on the top of the list. Belinda Parker Brown, she and her organization have now filed a lawsuit against the state of Louisiana. And in this lawsuit, they plan to challenge the state of Louisiana once again on the issue of these non-unanimous jury verdicts. They, they was caught, the highest court in the land, the United States Supreme Court ruled what they did here was unconstitutional. And I'm saying it was criminal. So I'm saying that if it was unconstitutional and the United States Supreme Court, along with the people voting, 64% let these people go. Let them go free. If we got to organize some type of facilitation on how we want to release the people, that's fine. But it's not right for them to hold them hostage, kidnap, because they got it wrong. And we're going to have action steps linked in the bio for Belinda's organization and to help Jace. So I put together a petition for Jace. We're hoping to create awareness. And we also want the new district attorney who is in St. Tammany Parish, he has the power to reopen Jace's case. All the supporting documents, all the inconsistent statements, Jace's phone records, Carter's phone records, Grant Gather's phone records, all of that information is available. It's for him to give Jace a second opportunity for his case to be reviewed. Go to the bio now, and we can all work together to right this wrong. And now we're going to turn to my favorite part of the show, closing arguments, where I thank both of you again. I mean, you just you inspire me to want to work harder and smarter, and I'm, we're going to keep fighting for you and for everyone that we can possibly help that's been wrongfully convicted. So... Closing arguments works like this. Izzy, we're going to start with you. I'm going to turn my microphone off, uh, kick back in my chair with my headphones on, close my eyes, and just listen to anything else you want to share with our audience. And then hand the microphone off to Jason. He'll take us off into the sunset. April 29th, 2007, another human being, Jose Martinez Carpio, lost his life. He had a family. He had people who loved and cared for him. He was an innocent man. He deserves justice. His family deserves justice. But if you have a situation where there's somebody else who had absolutely nothing to do with what unfortunately happened to Jose Martinez, if you have that person serving time in prison, then you're not delivering any justice to the victim. You're not serving society any good. And in what may have been the state's good intention, the state ended up victimizing another person and his family. Jace's conviction was a mistake. And it's a mistake that needs to be corrected. It's been 15 years overdue. And that's all that I like to say. We have social problems going on all over the world, all over the country. Social problems affecting predominantly black people 
a lot of times are not giving the resources and not giving the dressing that is that he needs. President Joe Biden, we see all of these political leaders addressing a lot of social problems, but with being left out a lot of times is this criminal justice system, this judicial system, and the way that it handles black people on a day-to-day. Judges in the courts, they're not taking seriously the litigation done by indigent defendants. They're not taking seriously the litigation done for who are, are mostly poor. This has changed. This, this, you can't continue to run a system, operate as a state, as a country, as a nation. You can't continue to operate with a historically agreed group of people who are being adversely affected by the workings, the inner workings, the bureaucratic inside of the system. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. 
From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.